All right, let's uh, let's have a look at God's word together. I, I want us uh, to begin by talking together. So I want you just to uh, talk to the person around you, uh, and I want you to talk in stereotypes. I want you to ask the person next to you, "What do you think makes the model Australian?" Okay, what makes a model Australian? All right, talk to the people around you. I'm going to get you to feedback. You can be as stereotypical as you like. Okay, you can come back to me in a couple of minutes' time. Talk to the people around you with that. Okay, let's, um, let's feed back a couple of these things. Who's got something stereotypical in a model Australian for us? Love sport. Love sport. Good on you, Rod. I like that. Healthy, outgoing outdoors. Thank you, Rod. Has a beer in his hand. Okay, good, good, good. Mateship. Yes, yes, okay, yep. A fair go. A fair go. Oh, this is very good. You could all be politicians after this. That's excellent. You've got all the catchphrases. Anyone else? Sorry? Oh, no. Some, Mistrusted politicians. Mistrusted politicians. That's right. That's right. Uh, sorry, Bob? We don't like tall poppies. Don't like tall poppies. True. Beck? Owns a pair of thongs. That's right. Stubbies and thongs. I often try to say that, actually. I say that sometimes when I take a... A funeral, just to just to try and break the ice a little bit. So, do you want me to redress in my robes, or my suit, or stubbies and thongs? No one's ever chosen stubbies and thongs yet. Maybe they will at some point in the future. Um, these things make a model Australian, don't they? That's what uh, we've decided. We've we've got these stereotypes all through our media and various other places. TV shows uh, put forward what an Australian actually looks like. Of course, we're not quite like that, but we know what the model Australian looks like. This morning, we're going to look at a model Israelite. It's not necessarily a good thing, though. Uh, Like so many of the characteristics of the stereotypical Australian, some are good and some are bad. Here, in the case of the people of Israel, uh, Samson is the model of the nation of Israel. But it's not a good model. It's a terrible model, in fact. He is, in the book of Judges, the final judge. We saw his life begin last week. In chapter 13, and this morning we're going to skate over the top. We don't have time for all sorts of details here, but we're going to skate over the top of of chapters 14 to 16, and we're going to see a life that is, well, not well lived until the very end. (coughs) Just a reminder this morning, we have a question time after the sermon. It's at slido.com, which is the, uh, uh, the address, the web address for that, and the hashtag is HBSP. I'm going to pray, and then if you can have your Bible open, because we're going to look at chapter 15 and 16 as well, and we'll have a look at God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning as we look this, at, at this uh, unusual, strange, and uh, sometimes uh, uh, violent and striking passage to us. Please help us, give us insight, and uh, allow us to see what you want to tell us through this part of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at the life of Samson by looking at his nativity scene, the nativity scene of 
Samson as he was born, we found out that he was a, a, a man born as a Nazarite. Uh, that is, that he was supposed to be set apart from birth to serve God. More than that, he was going to bring his people, the Israelites, out of the oppression they were in. Uh, the sinfulness of the nation of Israel had seen to it that they were under great oppression from the people, the Philistines. And God had set apart this man, Samson, to defeat the Philistines and bring peace to God's people. And in chapters 14 to 16, we dive into his life. Having seen how he was born and that he was set apart, we now dive into an action-packed life. And we'll see that though Samson, as we know, was a strong man, he was not wise. He was, as that great Australian saying goes, all brawn and no brains. And so, right at the beginning of chapter 14, nothing else is known after his birth. And the first thing we see is what we'll see right through these chapters, Samson's desire for women. Start of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. What he sees... He wants. That's how it works for Samson. What he sees, he wants. And he's very demanding already, isn't he, in his life? Demanding of his parents. Probably getting too far ahead of himself. I know I'm really important. I can do what I want. I'm going to tell my parents what to do. But they go on to say in verse 3, hang on a second, this woman that you want is, is from the Philistines. From our oppressors. Don't you remember, Samson, that you are supposed to deliver us from these people? You can't possibly marry into that nation. You're supposed to deliver and defeat them. But we're told at the end of verse 3, Samson says, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. In fact, we're told that twice. We see it at the end of verse 7 as well. And she was right in Samson's eyes. Eyes. This is an important phrase, and we'll come back to why this phrase is so important a little later on. But we must notice in our own, uh, in our own time and space that this sort of language seems to us to be very dangerous. You can't marry that person. How can you say such a thing? Well, for God's people, marriage was a very important thing. And it ought to be a very important thing today as well. But it's never been an issue of race, one race marrying another race, but one faith marrying another faith. This has always been the problem for God's people and it remains a problem today. God's people are to marry in the faith. This has always been the way it is supposed to be. Because marriage is the most important friendship or covenant or agreement under God that any human being will make. You will call into your life, of course, the most influential person in your life. And so God's people were always Old Testament and New Testament to marry in the faith. But Samson's got no mind for any of this. What he wants, what he sees, he must have. And over the next few days, he makes trips down to Timnah, where she lives for all sorts of different reasons, going backwards and forwards. 
And during this time, he comes across a lion, as you read, as you heard read in the passage. And look at what happens in verse six of chapter fourteen. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Although he had nothing in hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now I don't know how one tears a young goat. <laughs> Anyone done that before with their bare hands? I mean, I'm not quite sure how that works, but. Let's say it's strong and he did it easily. We can say that, can't we? Here he is. It's not familiar to us, but it's familiar to him. And in the next few days, he heads down to Timnah and back again. And by, uh, as time goes by, a swarm of bees takes up residence inside the carcass of the lion. And honey is delivered from those bees. And so as he, verse 10 tells us, gets ready for the wedding, he's got a riddle. For all of the men that would gather around, maybe it was some sort of bucks party or something like that. Who knows what it was like. But he makes a, 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 makes a big riddle for them. You can imagine Samson at this point, can't you? He's about to get married and he's got all of these inferior men around him. I mean, he's the alpha in the room. And he's walking around and strutting around. He's probably got one of those cut off t-shirts so you can see his guns popping out and all the rest of it. And here he is and he's saying, I'm going to make a big bet with you. I'm going to make a big bet with you. Now, it doesn't sound like a big bet to us, but it was a big bet in those days. If you can get this riddle right, you're rewarded. I don't know if you've been to that coffee shop up the road, Cafe Diem. They have a riddle on the wall. Have you seen that? And each day there seems to be a different riddle or whatever. And if you get the riddle right, you get richly rewarded with a stamp on your coffee car you get one tenth of a coffee for the for the but that's good I guess uh, but you're not getting one tenth of a coffee here uh, with Samson the bet is big 30 sets of clothes it's a big bet in those days and over many days the men can't work it out for three days we're told in verse 14 they cannot solve the riddle and so these men come up with a plan we're going to work on the woman we're going to pry it out from you look at verse 15 on the fourth day they said to samson's wife entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is lest we burn you and your father's house with fire i mean that's a pretty good uh, threat isn't it have you invited us here to impoverish us but samson's wife wept over him and said look at these words you only hate me and you do not love me You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, I haven't even told my mum and dad. Should I tell you? I'm not going to tell anyone. Well, eventually she wept before him. Verse 17 says the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to the people. She finds out. She tells the riddle to the people and Samson is furious. His anger burns. In hot anger, verse 19 tells us, he went back to his father's house. He went home. He didn't go through with the the wedding and instead Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man, which brings us to chapter 15. Because chapter 15 opens in much the similar way as chapter 14 opens. Samson turns up on his wife's doorstep with a gift. It's possibly a way of saying sorry. I'm not going to ask for a showing of hands, blokes, if you've ever done this. 
maybe brought a bunch of flowers home, done that, piece of jewellery, bought a new car, must have been a bad thing you've done. Uh, however big the gift might have been, he, he comes here with a young goat. It seems like a reasonable thing. But look at what he wants from her, verse 1. After some days, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. Verse 1 tells us he didn't just want to see her. He wanted to go have sex with her. This is what it means when he says, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. For us, it just means he's going to go inside. But for the Bible's writers, this is the way of saying he was looking for sex. But the dad says, no. I've already given my daughter in marriage to this other man. And so the result is in verse 3. Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And so verse 4, so Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a uh, torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Possibly an anger issue, I reckon. This guy's got, this is pretty bad, isn't it? This is pretty bad. This is like bombing the supply chains of a nation. This is what he does. It's absolute scenes as he gets out of control completely in his fury. But it's interesting how the Philistines respond, isn't it? Look at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, uh, and, and they said, The son in law, I'll read that again. Samson, the son in law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her uh, to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is is what you do, I swear that I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. He gets pretty angry. But so do the Philistines. And as a result, for a time, Samson lives as a recluse back out in the caves at some uh, in the caves somewhere out the back of Etam. And for a time, he lives there. But as a result, the Philistines come in even harder on the Israelites in oppression over them, giving a harder and harder time. And so, three thousand men of Israel come to visit Samson. Strength in numbers, I suppose. Three thousand men, and they come up to him and say, "Samson, you're making life really hard for us." All of your violent stuff that you're doing means that they're oppressing us harder. Can you please do something for your people? Let us tie you up and then take you and hand you over to the Philistines. Will you let us do that? Well, he says, all right, just, just, just don't kill me, but I'll let you do that. And so chapter 15, verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, this is a song, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone of his, uh, out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath-Lehi. means the hill of the jawbone. A very petulant man. 
But so it continues. At the end of this battle, we see in verse 18, he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord, but not with any sort of uh, generosity at all. Look at how he speaks to God himself. You have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Come on, God, I'm winning these battles. Give me a drink, champ. It's horrible stuff. Well, if the Philistines hated him then, they hated him even more now. This man that was all brawn and no brain. Once again, as chapter 16 opens, we find him once again looking for women. Chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. Chapter 16 opens with Samson looking again for sex. But stupidly, he's looking for sex in one of the largest Philistine cities. That's how keen he is just to get this sexual advance. Imagine the situation. He's a big, strong, tough enemy man, uh, uh, muscles bulging out everywhere, and he struts into one of the biggest towns of the enemy nation, as if they're not going to notice. He's the number one wanted man. And so they set up an ambush, as you would expect. But the ambush doesn't work. Samson gets away. In fact, more than that, he rips the gates of the city off their hinges and carries them on his back for 58 kilometres until he gets to the top of a hill uh, for the people of Israel and puts the gates up there. Reminds me of the castle and they're ripping the gates away and carrying them behind the car. Well, not content with that, he meets another woman. Another woman in verse 4. Another woman who lives in the very same area as the, as the uh, woman he was about to, meet in, uh, about to marry in chapter 14. This woman, well known to us perhaps, her name is Delilah. Delilah's name means to be flirty or to have amorous behaviour. We know exactly what we're going to get with her. Phil, uh, the, the Philistine woman Delilah is obviously uh, someone who looks good to Samson. Again, it's all about the looks, it's all about the eyes, and it's all about the sex. But the Philistines by this moment know the weakness of Samson and that women are his weakness. But Delilah, she has no such weakness. No, she has a different weakness. Her weakness is for cash. She loves cash more than men. Look at verse 5 of chapter 16. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him. And see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you, each of you, 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. That she was called Delilah with flirty, amorous behaviour. You can imagine this conversation as she's sitting in front of Samson and flitting her eyes at him. Come on, tell me where your strength comes from. Tell me, big man, what, 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 what's going to happen? Now you might say he's pretty dumb because he's going to fall for this again. How can he fall for this twice? Well, he tries to fob her off with a few stories that aren't true. If you tie me up with bowstrings, that'll work, didn't work. If you tie me up with ropes, that'll work, didn't work. If you tie me up with a a loom, weaving my hair into a loom, that'll work, didn't work. Each time, Samson breaks free. 
until we come to verse 15 of chapter 16. Imagine the tone of these words. Delilah said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. I love the language of this. And he, told, and he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak like any other man. Finally, Samson tells the truth. Now, it's not as if his hair was magical in some way, but his hair is a reminder that he was to be set apart for God and God's purposes. Indeed, though it was true, it seems like Samson himself didn't believe it. In verse 20, after he has his head shaved, she says again for the fourth time, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And so the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. Here he is, now caught, now chained, now with his eyes plucked out. And we're told in verses 23 through to the end of the chapter, he's used as entertainment for the gods of the Philistines. They would drive out Samson, they would bring him outside and make him do all sorts of things for their gods and for their entertainment. But finally... At the end of his life, after running around doing all he's done, he finally becomes humble. Verse 28 of chapter 16. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and the left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those who he had killed during his life. Only at the end of his life does he do what he was set apart to do. Only at the end of his life does he actually call out to God. Only at the end of his life does he actually serve God and walk humbly before him. It's taken all of his life and finally he's there. And he dies with the Philistines and saves God's people. Now, it's a great story, isn't it? Kind of think twice about teaching it to kids now, don't you? With all of its uh, sex-crazed, gory and and glory stuff that, uh, that Samson gets on with. There's lots of action. There's lots of intrigue. And he's not someone you should follow. But what are we to learn from it other than it being a great story? Well, as we finish, five very quick things that I want to share with you about this passage of Scripture. First of all, we must take care not to do what is right in our own eyes. The book of Judges is all about the nation of Israel and how they did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, in Judges 21 verse 25, it finishes this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samson 
He was ruled by his lusts, ruled by his eyes, ruled by what he could see and what he could touch. But he wasn't supposed to be. And none of us are supposed to be. We're not to live by our eyes, to do what is right in our own eyes. This is never how humanity is supposed to live. And ironically enough, it's only when Samson has no eyes that he sees life properly. It's only when his eyes are plucked out that he finally comes to be humble before God. The New Testament reminds us that we are to live in the same way by faith and not by sight. We are to live not with the lusts of our eyes at play, but trust in God. Look at just one example of this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. All of those three things, couldn't they, describe Samson's life? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world. For the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I, we are not to live this way. Not to live out of the desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes and the pride of life. It's all too easy to go with the flow of the world who are living this way. Whether it be with who we marry who we choose to have sex with, or just the day-to-day decisions of life. We are to see the world the way God sees the world. We are to put our trust in Him. We are to have our world view shaped by the Bible, by the Scriptures, and not by our own desires. Secondly, we learn from this passage that when Samson was not saving Israel, he was being Israel he is the model Israelite he was supposed to save his people like Israel he was set apart at birth to serve God like Israel he was betrothed to one and so he should have been but instead he fawned over foreign women just as God's people fawned over foreign gods and would not drive the people out of the land like they were supposed to at the beginning of the book of Judges. This is, if you like, a real-life parable. And like the nation of Israel, it is only when that, the man Samson hit absolute rock bottom that they began to call out humbly to God. Before that, he was, and the nation felt as though they were, strong and capable and self-reliant. And in the Christian life, we must also recognise that self-reliance, strength and capability is good, but it does not take the position of God. We are so able, aren't we? We are so capable. We're able to hold life together, even if underneath in our own households, everything is going awry. But whatever the shape of the consequences of your life, The Christian life is to recognise that all we have is from God. And we hope that none of us have to reach absolute rock bottom to realise this reality. All of us daily need to call out to God, to bring ourselves before him, to trust him, to rely on him in every way. The Christian life is about relying on God 
calling out to him and not trusting in our own abilities, but in his great ability and strength. The people of Israel knew God was there, but for, he, for them, he was a safety net. He was not an integral part of their life. He was the one they called out to when they got to rock bottom. When it was normal life, happy life, everyday life, they didn't think of God. But when things were at rock bottom, that's when they prayed. Is your life like this? We must not be the model Israelite either. Only calling out to God in our lowest moments. Of course, God is always there. But we need to make sure that he is not just a safety net, but an integral part of our life. Thirdly, this passage teaches us real strength. As I mentioned, Samson struts around in his uh, muscle shirt with his, uh, with his bulging muscles popping it. Did you notice that this week? We had one 23 degree day and there were five or six people in coals with no shirt on. Did you notice that? People are just aching to get those guns out. That's how it works. But it was like that for Samson as well. It was like that for him. I'm going to trust in my own strength. But at the end of the day, it wasn't his own strength. It wasn't his own ability. All of this stuff came from God. From beginning to end, he was God's person. His strength was from God. His ability was from God. And the means in which he saved the people of Israel was from God. You and I need to recognise that whatever good we can credit to our account, it all comes from God. The glory belongs to him. Fourthly, this passage shows us, strikingly and strangely, real faith. It took a very, very long time for Samson to come to the point of faith and to understand his faith in God. It, uh, it, it took him to get to rock bottom to show his faith. And as he stretches out his arms in victory to save Israel, there we see his faith finally on show. And this is why the book of Hebrews shows, us as a, shows him as a man of faith in the hall of faith. Remember this passage, we've seen it multiple times in this series. What more would I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, there he is, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and so the list goes on. Samson's faith is not about perfection by any stretch of the imagination, and neither is ours. No, faith is about trusting God in spite of our own sin and rebellion. To trust him, to humbly come before him and to put our faith in him. We are not to emulate Samson except for the last few moments of his life where he finally turned in faith to God. And when his eyes were plucked out, he was able to see clearly how the world is arranged and the world is arranged with God, the strength at the center, which brings us to our final thing this morning, Jesus and Samson. So there's a lot of differences, isn't there, between Jesus and Samson? Jesus was without sin. Samson seemed to sin everything in everything that he did. Jesus faithful, Samson very much faithless along the road of his life. But there's many similarities as well, isn't there? Both set apart from birth, both betrayed to death by a close friend, both stretched out their arms in death, and both achieved more in their death than in their remarkable lives. Often, like Samson, Jesus' life is emphasised. We should be like Jesus was when he lived, and that's a wonderful thing. 
He had compassion and taught people well, and that's all true. But it's the death of Jesus that brings about our salvation. The death of Jesus that changes everything for us, brings us from death to life, gives us victory over sin and death and the evil one. And though we need his perfect life for his perfect death to have that meaning, it is nothing without the cross of Jesus. And like Samson, Jesus brings defeat to the enemies, peace to his people, sets his people free. And he doesn't just do it for a small period of time, but he does it eternally. And so in the story of Samson, we see just a glimpse of the great saviour that God will send, the Lord Jesus. Samson becomes a model, a model of the true Israelite. Just a bad version of that model Israelite. Well, as God's people go on in the next few chapters, we're going to see that there are no more judges. And that means there's even more chaos in God's people. If you think this passage was bad, uh, get ready for the next two. Uh, Some of the worst chapters in the Bible to read out loud uh, in the next section of Scripture that we'll look at, but that's for next time. I'm going to pause. You can ask a question, uh, make a comment, whatever else you like, on slido.com and the hashtag HBSP. I'll be back in two minutes to answer them. Okay, a couple of questions here. Thank you for asking them. Uh, They're great questions. And uh, partly because we skated over the detail. They could spend so much time in each of these chapters, which is great. Uh, There seems to be a lot of exaggeration in these chapters. Uh, Is this for a rhetorical effect or is it meant to be accepted as literal? Um, You can have both. You can actually... You can have both. So when... uh, uh, well, we have sayings, don't we? We have sayings in our in our own household. Um, uh, like we might say in our family, we might say something like, "I'm annoyed into my soul," and we just say stuff like that to make each other laugh in our family. But if you're annoyed into your soul, we still know what that means. That's still literal. It's still true. It's still true that it's it's I'm deep down annoyed with whatever I'm annoyed with. 
Um, but it's it's just a turn of phrase. So I think I I don't think you have to posit the two against each other that it's that it's either true or not true. So I think it's true, but I think it's the way it's it's written as well. So in chapter sixteen, verse sixteen, for example, um, that's exactly the type of scenario it's in. When she pressed him hard with her words day after day, he urged and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. I mean, you, you're supposed to see. In him just going, I am tired of this scenario. I mean, he doesn't have a... He's not very nice. He calls his first... He says to the guys about his first wife, if you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Calls her a heifer. I mean, that's not a very good start to the marriage. Um, So he's obviously got this way with words. but, But nonetheless, he's annoyed. And so I think you can have both. You can have exaggeration and rhetorical effect uh, uh, and literal at the same time. Uh, I think that's true. Um, 14.19 and 15.14 describe the spirit of the Lord rushing upon Samson as he does his acts of revenge and anger. Could you explain why this is mentioned? Yeah, when he has um, these moments of, uh, of strength, it's described as the spirit of the Lord coming upon him. That's true. Um, but there's a, it's a, comp- a complicated scenario here. This is not the way God wanted to bring about the defeat of the nation of the Philistines. Now, nevertheless, they were the oppressors of God's people. And so when there is this little act of defeat, it's still, it's still God working against the oppressors of his people. So um, though it might not have been the way God would have liked it to, to happen, because Samson does things by his own terms, uh, he is still bringing in small part a defeat over the Philistines. So you can have both at the same time, a defeat of the Philistines, but also, um, uh, and God being at work in that, but also Samson doing the wrong thing in the midst of, of that at the same time. Which brings us to uh, the, next, the next question. Why does Samson pray for strength in order to seek revenge for his eyes? As that's down in chapter 16, verse 28. Um, uh, Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Um, he finally becomes humble. I, I hope you can hear that tone in the passage because he finally becomes humble. But it's not as if his prayer is perfect yet. You're probably a bit like me and you. Uh, we are Christians, but our prayers are frequently also quite selfish. Dear God, please let this person become a Christian because it'd be good for me. Or you know what I mean, something like that. Uh, and that's all he's doing here. So he's wanting revenge for his two eyes, but it's still about him at the end of the day. Uh, but he's still humble before God. And that's the big point of faith: is he's humble before God, but he's praying for his eyes. He's not really worried about the nation so much. He just wants to win for him. And so even in at the end of his life, there's still that kernel of of selfishness there which is nice for us because that's what life's like for you and me isn't it it's like our prayers are not perfectly godly all the time they're, they're, they're a mixture of godliness and ungodliness and that's what's here in in samson as well uh, verse 4 back in chapter 14 was samson or the lord looking for an opportunity to attack the philistines uh, the lord was the lord was and so uh, his father and did not his father and did mother did not know that it was from the lord for he was seeking an opportunity. The Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So again, it's this thing where uh, there's something that's negative happening. That is Samson going to try and marry this Philistine woman. That's a negative thing. We're not to see that as positive. But God is still behind it, uh, bringing about his purposes. It's strange, isn't it? We don't like that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, the wonderful thing is that brings us to the cross of Jesus. Because the cross of Jesus is God... Uh, uh, bringing about bad things bad things happen at the cross jesus dies but at the same time in the death of jesus is the victory over sin and death and evil and that's a a wonderful thing it's what we often see uh, in the humanity of the bible that even though people are 
are uh, are silly and mixed up. God works his purposes through us, which is great news. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the uh, the narrative of the book of uh, Judges and particularly the story of Samson. And we thank you uh, for his faith right at the end of his life. We pray, please, that you might help us, that we might never have to reach that same rock bottom to turn to you in faith. Uh, and to uh, continue to live as one of your people. At the same time, Lord, we ask, please, uh, that you might uh, help us not to live uh, by what is right in our own eyes, but instead you would uh, uh, help us to see the world, to have a worldview that is biblical based on you, and uh, so that we might see life as it really is. Thank you for Samson's example in that, that while he had no eyes, then he actually saw life properly. And so please help us to see life your way. Uh, so that we might live for you and, uh, and that we might please you in all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our first.